Good morning, everybody, and um, we will start now. So, once again, welcome to the Society and the first meeting of 2016, which is going to be a very exciting year for the question of religion and secularism. This society, Conway Hall Ethical Society, began for the benefit of people who are not members here, have not been before. It began well over 200 years ago as a dissident group of people who did not believe in hell, and they did not believe, which was the uh, legal thing requirement back in 1793. Uh, they didn't believe in hell. They thought that was a little bit too far. And then a bit later on in the 19th century, they didn't believe in something called the Trinity, which uh, those of you who are interested in Christian theology, you can explain it to those people of your neighbors who don't know what the Trinity is, if you can manage to do that. Um, in, uh, at that time, it was illegal to campaign or deny the Trinity. Uh, since then, this country and this society have evolved quite a long way towards... Uh, can people hear clearly what I'm saying? Okay. They've evolved quite clearly towards secularism in the sense that there's no longer um, shops all shut on Sunday. All the regulations and many of the particular regulations have been abandoned in the course of the time. But theoretically, Britain is, has got an established church. It's not technically a secular state. So there is still some way to go towards that. But the point is, the whole question of secularism and a secular state and the place of religion is obviously very controversial. And that's why we're so pleased to be able to set up this conversation. An original title uh, was An Atheist and a Muslim in Conversation, Overcoming Differences, Blasting Fundamentalism, promoting secular values. I've just found out that uh, Tamina used the word blasting for fundamentalism, but we, cha we changed that wording later on the website version of the title to, instead of blasting fundamentalism, challenging fundamentalism. I think the difference is challenging implies something fairly intellectual, and looking at you lot, you look pretty intellectual, and I don't think anyone has come here to do any blasting. I hope you've all come here to engage in intellectual debate. And that's what we're really designed to do, uh, to sort out the issues in an in a, in a intellectual level. So, the first speaker, Tamina Kazi, she is director of the, an organization called British Muslims, for Secular Democracy. She is Director of Media and Outreach, if I've got that right, and is on television and radio and so on. She will speak first about her society and what they aim to do. And after that, we'll have Boyd Sleater, who's come over here especially from Northern Ireland to speak to you this morning about the situation in Ireland and also, he is also uh, um, in Secretary or Chairman of Atheist Northern Ireland, as it's called. And after that, of course, there'll be 
the usual chance for questions and discussion. Right, please turn off your mobile phones if you have them on, thank you. And we'll now start off then with Tina Kazi. Okay, Tina. Thank you for inviting me to speak. I was raised in a liberal Muslim household with a non-religious father and a semi-practicing mother. Although we were taught the basics of Islam, such as how to pray, and kept a few fasts for the month of Ramadan, we never had any form of religious schooling, not even after-school classes at the mosque. It was entirely our choice as to how much religion we wanted to incorporate into our lives, or even if we wanted to identify as Muslim at all. My brother, for example, is openly agnostic, and he is fortunate to be a member of a family where this is not an issue. I am acutely aware that many others do not have this luxury. A BBC Radio 4 programme called Leaving the Faith talked to several ex-Muslims, many of whom had either not told their families about their change in beliefs or had faced ostracisation, even harassment, for their choices. The Christian sociologist Grace Davy talked about belief without belonging, referring to Christians who believed in God without necessarily going to church or partaking in other communal rituals. In Islam, we need to create spaces for belonging without belief, i.e. people who have been shaped by the cultural accretions of a Muslim upbringing, yet depart from the orthodoxies of belief in a number of ways. As for my own religious trajectory, I remained a believer, but had little to do with Muslim communities throughout my teenage years. Why? I was put off by the attitudes of Muslims I had encountered at my local mosque. Not just religious conservatism, which is inevitable in almost any mosque in Britain, but a combination of toxic attitudes. These span the gamut from fatalism, the belief that everything is predestined, which undermines individual agency, to conspiracy theories, whatever it was, the Jews did it, to an obsession with petty externalities, being ticked off when a strand of hair was poking out of my headscarf. Practices that run counter to basic notions of equality and human dignity, such as inadequate prayer spaces for women in mosques, and an inability to subject intra-community injustices to either internal or external scrutiny. The prevailing attitude was, don't wash your dirty laundry in public, which neglected to mention why, after so many years, a specific criminal offence had to be drafted on forced marriage, for example. All of this was worlds away from the kind of Islam that my mother taught me, which emphasised the path of balance and equilibrium in every walk of life, and the sort of connection with God that enables you to relate to fellow humans and other living creatures peaceably. Then, in my last year of a law degree, I joined an American social, Muslim social networking website. 
I was delighted to meet Muslims, mainly from the US, who were young, professional, and practicing, yet who managed to reconcile their religious beliefs with progressive attitudes towards women, LGBT people, and other religious minorities, like Ahmadi Muslims, who are treated as heretics by the majority of Muslims. I read dozens of essays and book chapters on progressive Islam and worked for a variety of human rights organizations after graduation. In 2009, I joined British Muslims for Secular Democracy as its director and was able to combine my lifelong desire to promote secular values with initiatives that bring different communities together. It's pretty clear that I'd have more in common with an atheist or agnostic who happens to be pro-women and LGBT rights and anti-sectarian than an individual who claims to be deeply religious and holds the opposite of these positions. In my experience, a lot of Muslims who are not even religious in the traditional sense still cling to tribal knee-jerk positions on issues like the government's preventing violent extremism agenda rather than seeing this for the nuanced and complex set of policies and practices it really is. My advice, if you are thinking of working in this field, either formally or informally, is to try and keep people united for a cause, as long as they have roughly the same goals. They don't need to agree on everything 100%, but they do need to have integrity and a code of ethics. Try to put yourself in other people's shoes throughout, and don't let identity politics prevent you from challenging oppression wherever it emanates from. Thank you. Um, rather than go straight on, I just wonder if anything you've said has given rise to a question. Would you be prepared to take any questions now? I don't mind. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm talking about questions on what you've just heard. General matters we'll leave till later. Is there anything that uh, Camina said that anyone wants to ask about? If not, we'll carry on. You have a question directly on that. Yes. Why do you have to say British Muslims? That's okay, hold on, hold on, I will repeat the question. The question was, why talk about British Muslims? What, do you want to add something to that? I don't know what you mean. No, why not say Muslims living in Britain? Uh, oh, I see. I think that's a minor point. I think, well, I think he's asking about the name of your society, British Muslims. Why is it called that? Perhaps you could... Well, because we have a, a very specific remit, which is to deal with matters of extremism and fundamentalism in Britain, among British Muslim communities. And as much as we'd like to deal with fundamentalism and extremism in American Muslim communities or other communities in, across the West, I mean, there's only so much we can do with two part-time members of staff. We're a very small organization, so we, we've got a, a, we have to keep on our remit very specific, just to limit it to Britain. Thank you. Any other point? Yes. Norman, sorry, Norman, would you, when time goes to the left, if we can't hear you, it's, it's, it's live. All right, it's okay, all right. Okay, yeah, yes. Can you put your, would you, yeah, stand up and, and shout. Okay, um, as, a, as a humanist, I think, you know, are the humanists, you know, Oh, yeah, right, there's a hand mic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good.
Is it working? Yes, it's going. Um, as a humanist, I, I obviously think that, uh, I'd hope that my fellow humanists would strongly support the line that Tamina's taking and other, other groups like, like hers who are doing a great job. But my question, though, is really to get your feeling for what direction the wider Muslim communities, of which there are many, are going. Are they going in the direction that you're pushing for, or is actually is the tide going the other way? What's your gut feeling? Okay. Well, when I started in this job six and a half years ago, I used to get a lot of people asking me, how can you be Muslim and secular at the same time? A lot of people couldn't even get their heads around the concept. And I think it's testament to BMSD's successes that I get asked that question far less frequently now. And people are, are, are more likely to see how you can be a Muslim and support secular democracy, how you can be a Muslim and robustly challenge extremism and fundamentalism carried out in the name of the faith. But I, I find that Muslim communities are becoming more and more polarized. So the extreme, what I would refer to as the extremist and fundamentalist voices, they're gaining ground and there are more organizations that put their viewpoint across. But at the same time, there's a, the, lib, the space for liberal, secular, and progressive Muslim groups is growing as well. For example, three years ago, we set up something called the Inclusive Mosque Initiative, which is a pop-up prayer space for Muslims who don't feel like they fit in traditional mosques. Now, these could be women, LGBT Muslims, Ahmadi Muslims. We even have openly gay Muslims on the committee, and we talk. We have host events on taboo-busting topics like Islam and mental health, Islam and humanism. So I'm really glad that these these sorts of conversations are now taking place. Yeah. And also, um, organizations like the Islamic Society of Britain, which used to be sort of perhaps moderately conservative before, have also moved towards the middle ground. And I'll give you an example of this. In 2011, we put on a demonstration against al-Mahajirun and their poppy burners on Remembrance Day. And the only reason we didn't go ahead was because they were banned the night before by the Home Secretary. But the ISB joined forces with us in order to do so. And they would have never done this when BMSD was just being set up in 2006. Right, so to explain what a secular state is, that it's not necessarily anti-religious, that is really your problem, isn't it? To, con to persuade people that, to persuade Muslims, that a secular state should, would help them and is not anti-Muslim. Right, any other urgent points? There are several I can see. Who's got the hand? Yeah, okay, thank you. Hello, I'd like to ask the exact same question. But from the Sorry, can you start? Slower, I okay, couldn't hear sorry. you. Hello, I'd like to ask the exact same question from the opposite angle. How do you feel that the secular British society is doing today? Do you feel we're supporting you enough? Supporting maybe perhaps we're doing the opposite and supporting extremists too much? What's your opinion? Thank you. So, sorry, I, I didn't hear all of that. The secular British society into what Well, uh, there is something called the National Secular Society whose only aim now is to make Britain a secular state. Um, apologies, I meant secular society in general, so... Okay, all right. Britain, I, I think the question, the question is asking, are you getting any support from non-Muslim secularists in Britain? 
Yes, uh, to a limited extent. I mean, we've had a lot of support, thankfully, from the British Humanist Association and the Atheist Humanist and Secularist um, Students Convention. I've spoken at the convention a number of times. Um, in fact, I was the first religious speaker to speak at one of their conventions. And the NSS ha um, shortlisted us for the Secularist of the Year Award t in 2013. But at the same time, I feel that there are certain sections, particularly among the, the far left or hard left, that really do not support secular Muslim voices and in fact are actually inimical to them um, and, and, and do their best to sort of promote the, the most reactionary and fundamentalist voices within Muslim communities and while denying us a platform or denying us any kind of count opportunities for counter speech. Yes, you've certainly raised a problem there of uh, people on the perhaps far left who seem to want um, seem to be against what would appear to be the logical position and want the Muslims all to be religious perhaps or yeah. uh, a unified single community they can talk about and not recognize the bigotry that might exist in a wholly religious community. For example, I've been mentioned less than favorably on a blog called Islamophobia Watch, which is now defunct, but it was quite active a few years ago. And they, they were, because I was taking a strong position against fundamentalism within Muslim communities. They named me on this blog and I've, done, I've worked on challenging anti-Muslim sentiment throughout my entire career. Thank you. Uh, we'll take one more question and then we'll move on. Yes, right at the back. Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting you said about your upbringing. Your Sorry, start again slowly. <laughs> Beg your pardon. Is it, you can hear it again? Yeah. Um, yes, your education, it sounded very much your personal education, I guess your upbringing with your mother and your family gave you that freedom to have a liberal sort of approach to religion. Do you yeah. think there's room for that within the religious community of Muslim or is that very much more in your experience something that you were given personally at home? I think I'm very much in the minority, sadly. Um, when I think of all my Muslim friends and acquaintances, the vast majority of them had some form of religious schooling, either going to a madrasa or a mosque um, or after school classes, um, so it's some, something along those lines. Um, and it, there's very little in the way of progressive religious education in this country. I'm actually hoping that the aforementioned Inclusive Mosque Initiative can lead on that as we become bigger and more powerful. And we're actually looking to get a a permanent mosque space, a, a proper building, as opposed to being a pop-up mosque. So hopefully that's something that can happen in the future. Okay, that raises the whole question of, of faith, schools, etc. Perhaps we'll have time to deal with that later. Shall we now move on to Boyd Sleater <laughs> uh, from Northern Ireland? And, yeah, yeah. okay. Hi there. Um, as you can see, uh, Tamina's very organized. Um, I'm not just so organized. Uh, uh, I'm sure you've heard the term organized atheists is like herding cats. And that really is the case. Um, I'll talk a bit about Atheist Northern Ireland, first of all, because I know some people sometimes have issue with atheist organizations. I mean, what is it other than a disbelief in God? After that, you know, what do you do? What are you meant to do? Originally, we set up uh, some secular brunches in Northern Ireland and we discussed what we wanted to do as a secular organization and it turned out that atheism is considered a belief system and in order for us to have that same sort of platform as Christianity in Northern Ireland which has a, a grip of Northern Ireland 
we needed to call ourselves an atheist organization. And there was a lot of debate about it. Um, we came to the conclusion that that was the best thing for us to do in order to have the same platform as Christian organizations. So around about a year ago, seven of us set up uh, Atheist Northern Ireland. And as it is, um, I'm not sure whether you've seen some of the news articles recently about atheism being a white male privileged organization or it's all white male privileged people. Well, we're actually an organization of seven trustees, three female, four male, and that was very organic. That's just the way it happened. So we're quite happy about that. Um, and we decided as an atheist organization, what we wanted to do was to look at the issues in Northern Ireland with predominantly with Christianity and to be progressive in the way that we dealt with things. We weren't there just to slate religion and, and take the piss out of it as a lot of sort of atheist social media pages do. Um, so we try to be progressive in the way that we do things. Um, we have worked with the Interfaith Forum in Northern Ireland to um, help devise a project called Threads of Peace, which was about uh, civic events and how to include lots of different people of different religions or non-religions and how those events should take place. Um, at the minute, we're very involved with the religious education uh, syllabus in Northern Ireland. Uh, in Northern Ireland, in 1994, I believe it was, which was a, a very a big thing. In 1994, they, they got the four main churches to uh, devise the religious education syllabus. And that was, that was a big thing in 94 because it was Catholics and Protestants coming together to create a religious education syllabus. The issue is that it's a Christian religious education syllabus and there's nothing else in it for any other sort of belief systems or non-belief systems. So we're working with the BHA, the Humanist Association of Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland Council for Ethnic Minorities, and uh, the Interfaith Forum to try and at least give it another option for a uh, religious education syllabus for Northern Ireland. We feel that we shouldn't be creating that syllabus itself. That should be something that should be created by the government or by the you know, education systems. But you know, we need to have another option because at the minute there isn't one in Northern Ireland. And, and that, that's, that's the biggest issue I feel in Northern Ireland with regards to things like xenophobia. There's this split. It's Catholics go to state schools. Pro, uh, sorry, Catholics go to Catholic schools. Uh, Protestants go to state schools. And there's very few integrated colleges. And even the integrated colleges are integrated Christian colleges. They aren't an integrated college of all belief systems. So for us, we were looking at along the lines of a better religious education system or a better religious education syllabus could possibly or help prevent sort of xenophobia, which is a massive issue in Northern Ireland. You know, I mean, racism, bigotry, sectarianism, homophobia, you know, these are, these are issues in Northern Ireland. Um, for instance, I'm not sure if you're aware, but equal marriage does not exist in Northern Ireland. So you know, a man, a man, or a woman, a woman cannot get married in Northern Ireland. At the minute, there's a case going on where um, a couple had married in England and had moved back to Northern Ireland, and their their marriage had sort of been annulled because they were now back in Northern Ireland. So there's a there's a court case at the minute going on, which hopefully will you know will, will make a difference to uh, how equal marriage uh, goes down in Northern Ireland. Sorry. 
can I interrupt? Are yep. you saying there is no civil marriage in Northern Ireland? Uh, you can't, yes, you can have civil marriage in Northern Ireland, but there's no, uh, sorry, you can have a civil partnership, okay. uh, but no uh, equal marriage. And um, in actual fact, quite recently, uh, our local government, Stormont, voted on having equal marriage. Uh, the vote went through as a positive vote for equal marriage, and then our main party called the DUP, which is a Democratic Unionist Party, supposedly, uh, they vetoed it. And they vetoed it using a, something which is called the Petition of Concern. And the Petition of Concern was set up so as minority groups within Catholic or Protestant backgrounds wouldn't um, face any persecution. But they are now using this Petition of Concern in order to stop things like equal marriage or pro-choice, um, lots, lots and lots of different things. And it's, it's very difficult because in actual fact, Northern Ireland is a plural secular state. We do not have a state church, and yet I hear every day, this is a Christian country, you know, this is, you know, if, if Muslims want to come over here, they have to abide by our rules and whatever else. And it's a bit like, you know, we're not a Christian country. In actual fact, we're a country of minorities. Um, none of the none of the uh, churches in Northern Ireland, although they all may be Christian, sort of get together. So they're all like, I mean, we have Methodists at three percent. You know, we have Church of Ireland, which is about ten percent. You know, and it's so we're very. It's a it's a very it's a it's a country of minorities, even though it's Christian minorities. Um, so what else is there? Uh, yeah, so pro-choice integration. Um, things like the religious education syllabus are things which uh, Atheist and I are working on and working with other people on. Um, we've had gained quite a bit of ground recently because we are the first sort of atheist organization. And I think just standing up and saying you're an atheist in Northern Ireland gets you some sort of media coverage straight away anyhow. Um, but it's worked very well for us um, and, and we're getting positive response from people right across the board, from atheists, non-believers, from Christians who would agree that we need a, a more secular Northern Ireland. Um, with regards to myself, uh, um, I grew up uh, in a, a non-religious household. My mum would consider herself an atheist. Um, when I was very young, my dad worked for Shell Oil, so we lived in Malaysia for quite a while. Um, and when I came back to Northern Ireland, I wasn't aware of what sectarianism or bigotry really was. I, you know, I was used to living in country with different people and, and, and having different relationships with different people. And coming back to Northern Ireland, it struck me quite quickly in, in primary school that sectarianism existed, you know, um, and it was, it was a difficult thing to understand at the start. Um, I had friends from both sides of the divide, from Protestant and Catholic divide, and yet they wouldn't mix together. You know, those, those, those people wouldn't interact with each other. Um, and in actual fact, I can remember that I did actually have some friends that got together from both sides of the divide, and after we, had a, had a, we were at a party, and a couple of days later, one of my friends said to me, oh, where, where are those guys from? And I was like, oh, they're from the White Well. And they were like, oh, from like uh, White City, which would be a very Protestant area. And I was like, no, no, they're from the other side. And they were like, oh, they were Catholics. And I was like, yeah, they were Catholics. And he said something to me that will stick with me forever. And this guy was in his 20s at this stage. He said, I didn't expect Catholics to be like that. And, and it was just like, I, I just didn't know what to say. I mean, what, what do you expect somebody to be like? And I actually fact, they were very, very similar. They got on very well. And, 
and, and after that they always asked about each other, although they would never go into each other's area to speak to each other. Um, so for myself, I mean, I, I had uh, quite a good upbringing in that way that, you know, my mother was very much like, you know, each to their own. My dad would have been one of these sort of part-time Protestants, you know, liked to think that he would go to church, but didn't, you know. Um, for instance, I was baptized. I have three sisters. Two of them were baptized, and my mum, when my youngest sister was born, was like, look, I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing baptism anymore. And my dad was like, I go and get her baptized. And my mum was like, well, if you want to be baptized, you know, you go and do it. But my dad's lazy, so it just never happened. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Sonia's the only one that's going to hell in our family as it is. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, that's, that's a bit about myself, and that's a bit about Atheist Northern Ireland. Um, I think Tamina made some good points about secularism, and, you know, th that's an issue for us in Northern Ireland as well. It's telling people and trying to explain to them what secularism actually is and how it it helps minorities and it stops minorities from being sort of persecuted to a certain extent. And it's not about getting rid of religion or getting rid of Christianity. It's about giving space to those things um, and for them not to be involved in the state. Thank you. Thank you very much, Boyd. I just have one question. When you said Church of Ireland, that is not an established church in Northern Ireland, is that right? No, it is. It is. It's, it's called the Church of Ireland. Yes. So, yeah. so w when it comes to various ceremonies, civic ceremonies and so on, uh, they're not therefore necessarily all done in a Christian way, is that right? No, they would be. Ah. Um, so, in, in actual fact... Because that would seem to be a place where you could get your ore in somehow. Yeah. Um, so the, the Threads of Peace initiative that we worked on um, with the Interfaith Forum and with a number of different groups from different um, faith backgrounds, including like the pagan background, Islam, uh, Judaism, and a number of others, um, that came about because there was an event for Remembrance Day, I believe it was, um, and it was, it was very Christian-centered. And there were people from lots of different faith backgrounds and non-faith backgrounds at that, and they felt that it, it, they felt that they didn't give space for other beliefs, and that it, it was very much like we're not going to sing this prayer, or sing this hymn, and have this prayer, and it was very much not open to all. Um, and so they 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 started that initiative after that, and they wrote some uh, sort of a. a, a a book which sort of gives guidance to what they, they feel should go on at sort of uh, civic events. Personally, I think that um, when, when we were asked to comment on this, I, personally I think that all civic events which are being funded by our local government or the government should be secular events. Sure, have space for people to pray if they need to pray, you know, with space for, and uh, have maybe dietary requirements sort of, um, catered for, but I, I think, you know, you don't need to have God involved in civic events, you know, so that, that would have been our, that would have been my um, sort of input into that, but I understand that Northern Ireland is still seen very much so as a Christian country, and they will want to have their prayer, so it's about trying to um, do something which at least involves everybody else, so it doesn't make anybody feel that they're sort of put out in any way. Thank you. Well, does anyone else, does anyone have a question 
to OAID on specifically the Northern, Northern Ireland position. Um, Donald, there. Yeah, the microphone is coming. <coughs> Isn't it true that, uh, that uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland is largely a tribal conflict and that the two religions, the Catholics and the Protestants, are more or less an expression of a tribal divide? So that leads to the, to the question, uh, what if, when you ask what happens to a, uh, an atheist in Ireland, the answer is it depends whether you're a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist. And what do you do about the tribalism, never mind about the religion? Well, uh, yes, Northern Ireland is a difficult place. And uh, the, uh, being a Catholic or a Protestant is just another way to separate you in Northern Ireland to a certain extent. Uh, the, the conflict in Northern Ireland has very little to do with uh, religion. To a certain extent, maybe in, so, in some ways it may do, but it's not. It's just another way to divide people. I would say the conflict in Northern Ireland is a, a territorial war. You know, it's a, it's really about unionism and republicanism, um, people wanting a united Ireland or people wanting to stay as part of Britain. What you do about that is, I think, is about instilling critical thinking. For me personally. I don't really have uh, uh, an opinion on whether we should be a united Ireland or a part of Britain with regards to how I feel about it. I take it on this sort of opinion of what can we financially do or how is this economically going to be good for Northern Ireland? And that's the way I would, I would base my opinion on it. And so at the minute, my opinion would be to stay part of Britain. But you have to remember that even though there's supposedly peace in Northern Ireland now, it's very, very difficult for people to let go of what has happened in the past. Um, it's extremely difficult for uh, you know people who have had you know brothers, sisters, family members murdered by either the the sort of what would be considered terrorist organisations or paramilitary organisations in Northern Ireland. And, you know, by the British government, I mean, there was a lot of murders by the RUC, the police service, um, and, and the British Army in Northern Ireland, which, you know, were unjust. So, you still have a generation of people living with the atrocities that happened in Northern Ireland. And although, not particularly my generation, but the generation below mine, and you know, a couple of generations below mine, they... You know, they may not have grown up with it. Um, they may have, have been, you know, seen the atrocities that took place. They, you know, will have lived through times where there's been no bombs go off in Belfast. There's no security checkpoints where the army isn't on the street. But they still come from the families who have had to deal with that. And we have a lot of um, sort of uh, community events in Northern Ireland where they'll bring Catholics and Protestant school children together to do different things. Maybe it's to play football or for youth clubs, for things like that. And that's all good. But I noticed that it's not making the difference that it should make. And I believe, I personally believe, that this is because they go back to their families and their families go, oh, but those Fenians or those orange men or those, you know, and it's this inbred 
hatred that they grew up with. And I feel, and there's something else that I've, you know, I plan to try and work on, is that we need cross-community programs, not for children, but for adults, for them to get together and for them to go and do things together to realize that there's no difference in each other and that they can come together and that they can, they can try to make amends on the things that have gone wrong in the past. Uh, and and that's, that's what's important because the cross-community project is one hour or two hours a week. They're living with their family every single day. You know, they have to go back into those communities. They have to go back into places where you have Union Jacks flying on every flagpole or tricolors flying on every flagpole. You know, murals which uh, depict paramilitaries as, as, as great people. You know, that's, that's the sort of places that they're coming from. You know, and that's the sort of people that in some respects they look up to and you know and that and that's what we need to eradicate in some way and i think you can only do that with the older generation the people who they look to have influence from okay, is there one more question on on ireland specifically yes yeah. hi um hi. i was interested in what you said about the changing demographics and mm -hmm. i know that you mentioned that um there's still quite a lot of hostility towards the, the, maybe the new demographics that are entering Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. But I wondered if from your point of view and what you're trying to achieve, if you found them to be allies. I know Tamina was mentioning that um, there's still some hostility towards the secular democracy in, in certain Muslim groups. Um, and I assume that's true of other mm -hmm. things as well. So have you found the changing demographics to be helpful towards your aims? Um, yes, uh, I, I think we, we find that we've had quite a bit of support from um, people right across the board, Christians included. Um, you, you'll tend to find that um, there's not many in the sort of fundamental uh, Christian groups in Northern Ireland, but their voice is very, very loud. And not only is their voice very loud, but they have got plenty of money. You know, they have got plenty of weight behind them. The likes of the Christian Alliance will support um, cases like the Asher's case. Uh, I don't know whether you heard about a bakery in Northern Ireland that wouldn't um, wouldn't put like a, a gay slogan on a, on a cake because they, they consider themselves a Christian bakery. Um, you know, and and really, the likes of the Christian in Institute, what they're doing is they knew that the case wouldn't win. They knew that they weren't going to win the case. But what they're trying to do is create a publicity to say that Christians are being persecuted in Northern Ireland, where they're, they're not. You know, they really do have their own space. But we have, there's lots of, and, and this is where I go back to, and this is why we would sort of support uh, Tamina and what, and what she does and what other uh, progressive religious groups do, you know, there are Christians out there who agree with us, who would be like, okay, well, we're not atheists, but we certainly agree with what you're doing. Um, and it's it's actually really good to see. And I, and I think, in actual fact, Atheist Northern Ireland probably has more support from um, Christian organizations than Tamina would, you know, in British Muslims for Secular Democracy, from even the media or the or the government in in England, um, you know, from what I've seen, it's it's a case of what story will people read, and they don't want to read the middle ground story. You know, they want to read all oh, Muslims are crazy and they're going to blow things up, or you know, the other side of it, which is you know the far right. You know, whereas in in Northern Ireland, I think because it's always been this ex these extreme elements of, of of far right thinking to a certain extent that 
when we've come along as a secular organization and one which is promoting you know secular values and wanting everybody to have a, a space that they can they can believe what they want to believe in people are sort of jumping on board with it and sort of supporting us so yeah we're quite happy with that yeah what do you make of the muslim groups in northern ireland who are trying to use the blasphemy laws to criminalize pastor mcconnell uh, so I don't know whether everybody's aware. Yeah, I will a little bit. So um, Pastor McConnell is a firebrand preacher in Northern Ireland that uh, is a preacher in a church called um, the Tabernacle on the Shore Road in Belfast. It's very sort of Protestant firebrand preaching. He said something along the lines of... Um, sorry? Did you... What's that word? Oh no! Uh, what fire firebrand? Oh, firebrand! Firebrand fire preacher. Sorry, um, he said something along the lines of uh, Islam was spawned in hell. Uh, you know, uh, they're heathens, stuff like this. But in actual fact, he he was prosecuted, or they tried to prosecute him on him saying he did not trust Muslims. That was the bit that he was trying to be prosecuted on, and for us. Uh, the other thing, he was, he was prosecuted for using an electronic device improperly, which was because they, they broadcast it on YouTube. And the other thing was, uh, it was a grossly offensive message that they were trying to prosecute him for. Now, Atheist Northern Ireland actually backed him in saying that he should be allowed to have his freedom of speech and, and say, say what he wanted to say, although we completely disagreed with what he was saying. Our issue was that we felt that this was blasphemy coming in through the back door in some way. You know, if somebody gets prosecuted for being grossly offensive, what what's the next thing? I mean, am I not allowed to be offensive? You know, you're allowed. In my opinion, offense is taken, not given. You know, I can choose not to be offended by something. I can choose to walk away from it. I can choose to point and laugh at it. I can choose to say, okay, you're being offensive, but you're an idiot, you know, and, and that's fine. Um, what he wasn't, or, or what they what they looked into initially, or what the police looked into initially, was was this a hate crime, or was this promoting or uh, inciting hatred? Now, if the police had found that there was some incitement of hatred, that would have been totally different. You know, if we'd find that there was uh, anti-Muslim hate crime had gone up because of this, which in some ways there was, but they couldn't relate the two. You know then yes, we would have been saying no, prosecute him for it, but we can't prosecute people for being offensive. Now what has happened in the last couple of days is that um, the Islamic Centre in Belfast has come out saying that they disagree with the judge's ruling and that they should be using the blasphemy law in Northern Ireland to prosecute him. Now Northern Ireland does have a blasphemy law, but it has never ever been used. So this is another thing that Atheist Northern Ireland needs to try and get uh, done away with. You know, we need, we need to get rid of blasphemy laws. They're not good. Well, I, I didn't, um, didn't realise that when the blasphemy law was abolished in, in England that it didn't also apply to Northern Ireland. Is that right? That's right. Um, they kept it on in Northern Ireland. Yes. Who knows why? <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they kept it on in Northern Ireland, but it's, it's never been used. It's never been used. Mm. So, um, okay, can I can I ask um, Camina what what is your opinion on this divide, this sort of thin line between attacking the concepts in a religion 
and attacking the people who believe the religion. Presumably, it's okay to attack the concepts in a religion, whatever they might be, uh, but not to attack the individuals. What is your opinion on that? I'm very much of the opinion that individuals should be afforded protection in law, but beliefs um, should not, in the sense that they are open to scrutiny, that there should be a proper extended critique of, of religious beliefs. Just because a belief happens to be religious in nature, that doesn't exempt it from scrutiny. And this is something that people fail to understand, for, for example, during the Charlie, well, it would be Charlie, the Charlie Hebdo magazine. Um, I found a lot of people were conflating um, sat satirical cartoons about Islam with uh, Islamophobia. And this is why I don't really like the term Islamophobia. I prefer to use the term anti-Muslim sentiment or anti-Muslim attacks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I would agree completely with Tamina. It's, you know, the idea of um, not being able to um, you know, confront ideas or opinions is wrong. You know, we need to be able to have healthy debate. We also need to be able to, we, we, you know, we need to be able to take the piss out of things at times. You know, we need to be able to have a bit of a, a laugh and a joke about things. I mean, things like the life of Brian, you know, those things were great. Um, and it seems that this term Islamophobia has been, has been made so as people cannot criticize Islam. And you know, we should be allowed to criticize ideas. That's, it's a healthy thing to criticize ideas. Even criticizing people about their ideas is totally fine as well. It, it does become an issue when people start to, start to criticize individuals or criticize groups of people, not for, the, for their ideas, but for them being them. The idea that you know, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't be letting uh, refugees come into, into you know, the United Kingdom. In Northern Ireland, it's, it's, it's a bit of an issue. I mean, if you, if you watch social media and you watch the sort of comments that pop up, they're kind of ridiculous. And it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to even sort of rationalize things with people at times. You know, they'll, they'll say things like, oh, those Muslims coming over here. And it's like, well, what about the Muslims who are born and bred here, who are, you know, white Irish, Muslims, and it's like they, they just won't comment on it. They, I don't. I don't seem to think that they seem to think about it. And then what they'll do is they'll turn around and say things like, "Oh, but you know, if they, if 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 you know, if Christians went over to Saudi Arabia, they wouldn't be getting the same rights that they have over here in 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 the United Kingdom." And it's a bit like, well, look, we should not be holding ourselves to countries with human rights, you know, we, 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 should be, we should be saying we are proud about our human rights, we are proud about our equality acts. And I mean, one of the things I said to him was, well, if you don't like the fact that we have equality in Northern Ireland or equality in the United Kingdom, maybe you should go and move to Saudi Arabia, you know, that's, you know, it's, mm. and, and again, it's, it's trying to, it's trying to sort of engage with people in a way that they can understand what you're saying, and also, take the piss a little bit, you know, we have to have a little enjoyment out of what we're doing, we have to try and enjoy the debate and, and try and get more people engaged in debate, you know, sometimes it's just too intellectual, you know, people will just be, it just goes over the top of people's heads, so I try to break it down in a way that it can be a, a bit fun and, and try not to, you know, and try not to disengage with people, but trying to keep people engaged in the conversation.
And I'd just like to quickly add to that, um, there's also a long history of critical thought within Islam itself, which was recently revived by the Muslim Institute with their critical Muslim journal. But, but is, there, is there really a lot of critical thought? Absolutely, yeah. They're, they're, they're critical uh, positions on, on, on quite contentious issues like Islam and women's rights and, well, all, all, all manner of contemporary issues. And what, what, about, what about the Quran itself? Are they critical about it? Some of the essays are, yes. Right, okay. Okay. I would like to read some of those. <laughs> um, and... Uh, one, one contentious matter was the question of evolution, because um, I've heard very um, eminent Islamic scholars saying that evolution is compatible with Islam, but on the other hand, there are lots of others who say it isn't. I don't know if you have any experience of, of arguing on that matter. Well, I think a game changer for the topic of evolution in Islam was the Dean Institute conference on the subject, which took place in, I think it was 2011 or 2012. And this is an absolutely massive conference with, uh, featuring perspectives from scholars who said that Islam and evolution were compatible. And one of them, um, Dr. Osama Hassan, is someone I count as an associate and also a personal friend. And when he spoke out in favor of evolution at his mosque in East London, he actually received death threats. And I, I stood up for him. I defended his freedom of speech and even gave a CNN interview on this at the time. And as a result, I received threats of violence myself. And I had to um, inform the police. So that, that was a, a prime example of how speaking out on a controversial issue, um, it leads to threats and abuse and intimidation and people trying to shut down the, de the debate instead of hearing but alternative points of view. This, so, sorry, there's, there's one of the things, I mean, is there critical thinking, not generally within Islam, but within the, 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 the Muslim community? I mean, it seems like he's come out and he said, well, evolution can't, is compatible with Islam, but what about all the people that he's saying it to? Are they just going, no, it's not? And, you know, that, that sort of gets me thinking as to how do you, uh, the thing is, Evolution is true. You know, we shouldn't need somebody to go, oh, well, it is compatible with Islam. I mean, maybe that's a bit of a picking and choosing type thing that a lot of religious people do and a lot of from different religions. But how do you get the, the wider community to, um, of, of Muslims to sort of think critically about things, you know? And, and can, they, can they think critically about things considering the Quran is seen as the perfect undeniable word of God, you know, if that, if that is like the first thing that the Quran is perfect from the offset, how can you get them to, to adjust their thinking on that? I think the problem is that a lot of these discussions are still very much in the ivory tower stage, so they're taking place in academic circles, but they're not really getting out there to um, just your, your sort of ordinary Muslim. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, one of the best ways to do that is via social media. And Boyd and myself are a member of a group called Agnostic Muslims and Friends, and it's run by a guy called Hassan Radwan, who used to be a teacher at Yusuf Islam School, the Islamia School in North London, and he's, he refers to himself as an agnostic Muslim, which means that he believes that the Quran is divinely inspired, but not divinely authored. So, you know, that, that, that's one really yeah. a, an example of a really good critical perspective yeah. that has a, a wider audience. I mean, there, there are how many thousands of people in that Facebook group? Yeah, no, there are. I mean, and Hassan has actually, he's written a blog for Atheist Northern Ireland, and it was, it was very good. There are, st I mean, it still sort of concerns me somewhat, because it, it's 
it's a bit picking and choosing. I mean, Hassan has said, yes, I'm agnostic. I don't believe that it's divinely, he says, divinely inspired, but not from God. But that's a bit like, it's a bit picking and choosing. This is, this is what I want to believe. You know, that, that suits my... my if, I can, yeah. if I can just chip in here, that, I think you, that is actually a significant difference because uh, Christians will say the Bible is divinely inspired but not the Word of God, most of them. That's an enormous shift because it gives you scope for saying, well, we can... Perhaps the inspiration was not quite divine or perhaps we can change it. But if you insist as... Uh, Orthodox is Muslims might that it's the actual word of God. The Quran is on a different status. It's the very word of God. That is actually uh, much more difficult to uh, yeah. alter. So I think you shouldn't. Uh, no, no, I, uh, I, I, I wouldn't downgrade. I wouldn't downgrade it completely. I mean, I, I, I still, yeah, it does. And I like the fact Hassan is probably one of the best people to do it because he's. You know, he's extremely well written. He's he's very intelligent. He he speaks about it very well, and he can, you know, can he, he can put his ideas out there very well. Um, yeah, so I, I think Hassan's a good person to do it. It is for me. It is just that idea that it's a bit picking and choosing a, a little bit, which is something that all the atheists will always bring up. And you're picking the ones, the verses that suit you. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I suppose you could make the same argument about any kind of Muslim. I mean, yeah. no one follows Islam 100%, and they all have, I mean, there's many, almost as many Islams as there are Muslims. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree, I would agree. So I suppose that the, the best thing we can hope for is that these uh, divisions between literalists, which occur in Christianity and I think Judaism and other religions, will go on in, in Islam too, but not with consequent death threats to people like you. In other words, we won't, obviously, the debate will continue. There are always going to be the people who believe in the literal truth of whatever, of a holy book, so-called. Um, that doesn't matter, that will continue. Um, now, it's 12 o'clock. What I'm going to do is announce future meetings and then throw it open back to the floor for discussion. So, <clears throat> If I can just announce that uh, this evening at 6.30 there will be a concert in this room, one of our series of chamber music concerts. The program is available out there. Next Sunday at 11 o'clock there will be a talk called Challenging Self-Knowledge by Professor Kasim Kassam. I believe that talk is more on psychology than religion, but that will be next Sunday at 11 o'clock. Then there is a meeting on this Thursday by Conway Hall Ethical Society together with Global Network 21 on the ethics of climate change. Climate change. So if you're interested in climate change this Thursday in this building, uh, a meeting on that. And another final meeting, Monday, January the 24th, a London Thinks meeting taking place in the evening on the subject why we believe. So that is again bringing up the whole question of belief in religion and other matters. That's on the 24th. If you wish to join the society, you can and um, get its uh, monthly journal. Right. I think I've said everything. In that case, we will go back now to general questions on, in effect, we've covered a wide field, 
But can, can I just bring up one other thing? Yes, okay. Sorry, Boyd wants to say something first. Go on. Yeah. Yeah, there's something else that I wanted to bring up, which was um, about young uh, Muslim men generally um, getting involved in extremism and going to the likes of uh, out to Syria and um, uh, you know doing terrorist attacks and and why that happens and and you know you know we were to talk about extremism and how, how we can prevent that and. Doing a bit of reading, there's a few things that you know I, I saw that you know made me believe that maybe this is a reason, and it, it, part of it is that sort of fundamental belief that the Quran is is the perfect word of God, and then following from that, they're not being the things, they're not being sort of anything for them, you know. For instance, in the 60s, we had like revolution, you know, uh, in like smoking weed and, you know, stopping the bomb and stuff like that. And in the 80s and 90s, you know, as a, as a young adult myself, you know, we would have went out and partied and went and done different things and sort of rebelled against our families in the way that we did things. And it seems to be that this is, this is something that is rebelling against their families, even though their families may, you know, be Muslims as well. And they, they, they believe in the literal translation of the Quran, but they wouldn't they wouldn't believe in sort of attacking or murdering or hurting people, and this seems to be a step, you know, from that where they have come through living in a in a Muslim community or in a Muslim family where they don't drink, you know, they don't do drugs, they they believe the Quran is true, and the next stage for them is, well, I want to go out and I want to do something, you know, I want to rebel against what you know I I believe in, and they see it as adventure going off to Syria and going off and doing those things. Is there, is there anything going on in the Muslim communities which can prevent that? You know, and where, yep, where there's a lot of really good work going on. Um, here I want to talk about my friends and associates at the organization Inspire, who have done a series of roadshows called Making a Stand, where they um, encourage Muslim women to challenge extremist ideology within their families and communities. And they've, they've gone to cities or up and down the UK. And on top of this, they, Sarah Khan, the director of the organization, penned an open letter to young girls um, dissuading them from joining IS, as well as a, a video which has gone viral on social media. And what about the likes of prevent? Do you think prevent is actually preventing stuff or it's actually not preventing stuff, you know. It's, well, it's like I actually, I mentioned prevent in my talk on purpose because I think there's a lot of misinformation about prevent. I mean, a few years ago, I was quite critical of certain aspects of prevent, namely surveillance. It's, this is the government's preventing violent extremism agenda. So it's changed a lot in, in the last few years. There used to be um, certain elements that I had issues with, um, such as the um, uh, Project Champion, which was uh, so something that put security cameras in Muslim-majority areas of Birmingham. And I, was, I actually critiqued this at a conference at the House of Lords. And over the last few years, the program has changed significantly. And now it's more about outreach with um, students. So Inspire, the organization that I mentioned before, they'd actually deliver a lot of training and outreach on Prevent to teachers. And the, the take-up rate has been absolutely massive. So, and a, a lot of the negative stories you hear about Prevent now are actually um, from people with a certain political agenda where they don't want to tackle the issue of extremism, I feel. And, and one last thing, how, how do you think you're going to get your voice or a progressive Muslim voice heard more by the media? You know, what, what do you think, 
what do you think we can do, you know, as people to support that voice or, or people here in the audience? You know, I mean, I think part of it is that, you know, we need to sort of write to our papers, tell them about these things, you know, you know, try to try to push that. I know we, we try our best to do that, but what else do you think can be done to do that? Because I, I, I do feel that your voice needs to be heard more, you know, at least at least that sort of progressive voice needs to be heard more. Just continue to be good allies and invite us to speak at your events and invite us to write blogs on main, you know, in mainstream newspapers like the, the Independent, the Guardian, particularly the liberal left wing, the left wing press. I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, we, we we tend to get the impression, at least I do, that um, the people who go out to Syria to join ISIS must be like one in a thousand or one in ten thousand of the Muslim community. Is your impression that it's actually got more background of sympathy than that ultra tiny minority? There have been uh, polls, uh, opinion polls on British uh, with, with British Muslims, which shows that, which have shown that uh, an alarming number of them, or alarming percentage, do have sympathy, but not with IS necessarily. But, for example, the Charlie Hebdo attacks, the motives behind that, not the attacks itself, but the motives, and I find that really, really scary, actually. Um, and it, it, it just goes to show why it's, it's, the, it's extremist ideologies that need to be countered a lot more robustly in Muslim communities. For example, you have preachers going out to Islamic societies at universities and spreading bile about homo you know, homophobic views, misogynistic views, the, the sort of uh, promoting female gentle mutilation, for example. And there's no sort of real robust counter speech there. There's no real counter narrative. That's my biggest issue. I think, I think the left, the, the far left, would be uh, apologetic about what had happened with Charlie Hebdo as well. You know, even the Pope came out with something like, if my, what was it, if one of my colleagues said something about my, I don't know, my sister or something, I would, I would punch him. And it's like, so you're, wait a minute, you're a Christian, it's meant to be turned the other cheek, and yet you're promoting violence. It's a bit like, okay, this is a bit weird. Um, yeah, and it's that, that is a difficult thing to do because when you when you actually address it or when you sort of question somebody who you would generally think is very sort of straight up critical thinker about what their thought is on let's say Charlie Hebdo and you you address that this is just unacceptable, the comments like Islamophobia start being thrown out. You're Islamophobic, you're a racist, and it's like really I, I'm sort of saying that violence, you know, that nothing, even if you do draw pictures of Muhammad or Jesus or whatever, that still does not, you know, allow you to therefore go and attack somebody. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and the Guardian haven't always been great at, at, at pushing that voice as well, even though you'd say you'd want to try and be, your voice to be heard more in the Guardian, you know. I, I think those things do need addressed more, and I think part of the issue is that sometimes people are frightened to actually turn around and say, no, this is wrong, you know, and... And, and then you get the likes of um, that thing that happened at the university with uh, Mariam Nawazi, um, and you get like lesbian and gay societies of the university supporting an Islamic society who, in actual fact, had promoted um, stoning of homosexuals, like you know, earlier on in the in the year, like so. And, and those things need to be addressed, and those things people need to be pointed out and called out in those things. I think more so. Right? I mean, I was actually uh, quite shocked at when I when I went onto the social media websites of the LGBT society for what what university was, was it? Goldsmiths. Oh, Goldsmiths. 
Yeah, when I went onto their onto their social media pages to have a look at what comments they had made, that in actual fact very few people had responded to them. You know, and it's a case of people need to respond to that. People need to say, no, this is wrong. What you're supporting is wrong. You, you know, it's up to them whether they want to support it or not. I guess we've got freedom of speech, freedom of expression, but you know, it needs to be explained to them that's wrong from the yeah. offset. I mean, I left a very polite critique on both of those pages actually, and my comments were deleted. And the same with other people who had written on the pages of the Goldsmiths LGBT Society and the Feminist Society to ask them why they were supporting the Islamic Society against Mariam Namazi. And there's a really disturbing trend in universities about, well, we've heard all about safe spaces, microaggressions, trigger warnings. And you just think, well, a university is meant to be the place where you have um, healthy debate and discussion, where you have strong counter-narratives, and none of that is happening, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think, a lot, I think we all feel very strongly about that, that kind of issue. Now, let's go back to the audience. There are several people now. Who's got the hand mic? Is it? Yep. A gentleman, uh, round there. Yep. Thanks. Um, just for, I suppose, well, for everyone, but perhaps to me now, more particularly, I wonder if part of the problem is how we define extremism, because I think most people looking or watching the news would take that to mean people strapping bombs themselves or whatever else. However, quite a number of liberal European people would probably say that women being forced to wear certain clothes, behave in a certain manner with their virginity, with their sex life, their marriage, that in itself would be extremism. What do you, what do you think? I personally think that extremism should be defined as um, a, a, any attitude that's against fundamental equality and human rights standards as we understand them according to the Equality Act and the Human Rights Act. So gender segregation in public universities is a prime example of that. And this is why a group of us, a group of secular activists, campaigned so hard against that when Universities UK put out guidance legitimizing gender segregation in universities. And we were later vindicated because the guidance was withdrawn and the Equality and Human Rights Commission put out their own guidance to affirm that what they'd done was unlawful. Right, thank you. I think there are some questions at the back there. Who had it hand up before? Uh, it's gone, anyway. Gentleman there, yeah, okay. Yeah. Thanks. Um, just, just on the subject of counter-narratives and terminology, um, I think we're all sort of over, say, the last 15 years since the Gulf War and that we're, we've all become very used to the grouping together of words like Muslim and extremist, Muslim and fundamentalist. Now and again, you know, once in a blue moon you might hear about Christian fundamentalists or you never hear of Christian extremists and yet they're the ones who are doing the wars in the Middle East um, and, you know, if you listen to people like Ken Livingston, they would say that that's what's creating the whole thing. Um, and it's not just from that point of view, I mean, it's, it seeps into the group consciousness, if you like, and, you know, well-educated people will tell you, but they've always been extremists, they've always been fanatics, you know. Um, stuff like, you know, the fact that the Spanish Inquisition 
was largely set up to persecute Muslims, you know, nobody would probably know about that. Um, so the point of counter-narratives and what you've been talking about in universities about sort of, it's, it might seem like minor points on um, Facebook pages and blogs and that, but I think it is hugely important and to challenge stuff like how um, that there is equality of reporting in the media that, that everyone gets the same, the same chance. Uh, just another point, um, we've talked about, or you've talked about, Boyd, um, the sort of territorial and political um, narrative which runs along with the um, sectarianism and tension and violence in the past in the north of Ireland and sort of nobody, nobody disagrees with that. But I'm just thinking the first question here today was, um, after the first speaker uh, about British Muslims. Why did you say British Muslims? Why didn't you just say Muslims? I mean, I, it didn't even cross my mind. What's the problem with British Muslims, you know? It's as if, why are you grouping those two words together? And it's as if, you know, the political threat, the tribal threat, the... Um, the, the okay, you'll have the, to, uh, I think... Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, okay. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just throwing out these to, to see, to see what, what people think of that, that. It's more, it's more political. The same as the, 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 the setup, the sectarian setup, or the theocratical setup in government here was originally sort of, to, because Catholics were seen as a threat. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think you're right in saying that you know there, there is. There is Christian extremism, there is certainly Christian fundamentalism, all you need to do is come over to Northern Ireland to see it. Um, and it, it, yeah. that doesn't sell papers, you know, that, and that, that, that isn't what the media make their money out of, and that's, that's the truth of the matter. That's why, in actual fact, the likes of Twitter and Facebook and your social media platforms, you probably find better written articles from individual bloggers and stuff than you will in many of our papers. And that's an issue. That's an issue that the public needs to address. I'm not totally sure how that, how that happens. With regards to there being a counter-narrative to things, and, and you're sort of talking about it being a counter-narrative to maybe a, a Muslim group speaking or Islamic society or whatever, I think there needs to be a kinder narrative to everything. You know, there, there always needs to be a kinder narrative to things. I mean, personally, you know, although you know, I'm the chair of the Atheist NI, for me, for years, it's always been about skeptical thinking, always been about critical thinking, always been about you know, addressing the issues with things which are promoted, which I feel are not right, be it homeopathy alternative medicine, you know, I mean, one of the things that we recorded in quite recently um, was the Belfast Telegraph, which is Northern Ireland's largest selling paper, and on their front page, and this isn't like a supplement or anything, this was like, a, I think it was a Monday morning, main news, front page of the Belfast Telegraph, praying cured my cancer, you know, it's like, th this is an issue, you know, and, and this is an issue for people it's just—it's not a good thing to, to be on your in the front page of your of your main of your main paper, and we criticised it 
massively. Um, it was actually really good for us. We, we had massive engagement in social media. People came, you know, and agreed with us. And uh, you know, so it doesn't matter what it is people are talking about. You know, it doesn't matter what I say here today. You know, you should be here to oppose my views, and I and I sh and I should be able to accept the challenge on something if I if I say something. You know, that that should that should happen, and I think that needs to be done in universities. Maybe it's something to say. You know, if there's going to be a conference or a meeting or whatever else, that there there, there is always a counter narrative. I, I don't know if that's something that's possible. Okay, there's a lady over there who is. At the start of this meeting, I thought that I was going to get a positive uh, result from the lady uh, to this very bizarre story, but I'm now I'm not so sure. A few years ago, I had a series of extremely bizarre conversations with some proselytizing Muslims in Walthamstow Marketplace. The most bizarre bit was when they said to me, uh, of course you are a legitimate target for suicide bombers. So I said, oh, why? And they said, oh, because Tony Blair has been bombing our brothers in um, Afghanistan and Iraq. This is the sort of tone of voice like we were discussing whether Asda or Sainsbury's had better bananas this week. Um, so I said, well, I, hadn't, I didn't actually vote for Tony Blair. I'd forgotten that I had voted for him, but uh, never mind. They said, makes no difference, you're British, so uh, you're a legitimate target. Um, I then tried, um, after uh, the grandchild I was with said, let's go to the playground, so the conversation ended. I then tried to get some sort of reaction. I felt that there should be some organization that I could inform to say, do you know that you have got Muslims in a public place spreading this? I couldn't find any, any, anybody I could report this to, to say, come down and um, speak to these people. They were started off by staff. Sorry, just, should, that, should that just be reported to the police? I mean, that, that's, that's inciting violence to well, a certain yeah, extent, maybe? Uh, you this know. conversation, I, one uh, Muslim cleric uh, said, reported to the police. I said it was actually taking place outside Walthamstow Police Station. Um, and I said, do you remember what happened to Salman Rushdie when um, there were public threats of violence to him? Nothing happened to the people who were threatening his life, saying kill him. Instead, they just increased the taxpayer's burden by giving him protection. So I didn't feel that that would happen. I spoke to my Muslim friends about this. I said, you know, uh, you're all involved with mosques, why uh, would somebody be prepared to come down? And then I encountered Islamophobia, real Islamophobia, because my Muslim friends said, we would be scared to come and talk to these young men. Now, that is true. I, I, like you, I do not like the word Islamophobia for simply, I don't approve of Muslims, I don't like what they're doing. But this was Islamophobia. And um, is there now a somebody who, if this happens again in Walthamstow Marketplace, I can say, come down and send somebody knowledgeable to talk to these people? Okay, right. 
I don't know if you want to comment yeah. on that. Um, well, on, as well as the police, there's also a counter-terrorism hotline that you can contact. I can't remember the number of hand, but um, it, it's, it's, up, it's up there. And, um, and in terms of getting somebody to come and speak to young people, I would strongly recommend my associate Manwa Ali, who is the chief executive of an Ipswich Muslim charity called Jimas. And he's a former radical himself. He even went out to Afghanistan. And 20 to 25 years later, he's now, um, in, he's now an advocate of secular democracy because he believes that secular democracy is the best environment for him to talk about his uh, sort of reformed religious views and to, edu and to educate others about them without imposing his views on them. And he's, he's, he's done a lot of great outreach work with young Muslims, with uh, converts. Um, he's, he, I'd, I'd strongly recommend getting someone like him. Manwa Ali. Now there are supposed to be something called laws of war, one of which is you don't deliberately attack civilians. Now I know we can laugh at that when we think of atom bombs in Hiroshima and uh, Trident and so on, which are declared to be war crimes since their intention is inevitably to kill millions of innocent civilians. But there is supposed to be a Geneva Convention in which you don't go out and kill civilians. And, but it does seem to be, I've heard it on other uh, on uh, some people believe that anyone who's a national of a country, there's no such thing as a civilian, you're automatically guilty for whatever that country does. And I think it's obviously very important to argue against that particular notion. Whatever one thinks about um, Britain, in its wars and so on, it doesn't follow that every British citizen is uh, equally guilty and therefore a target. Obviously, you would agree with that one. I don't know if you have any views on that. Pretty obvious. Okay, let's uh, move on. Lady there. Yeah. It's, it is a lady, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Morning. Um, thank you very much. I have a question for both of you. Uh, you spoke about Charlie Hebdo and you spoke about freedom of speech also about the definition of secularism. Um, as campaigners for secular dem well, democracy, I guess you look at what's going on in France. And I think, I don't need to give you an example to show that France doesn't have a magic recipe against terrorism or against, um, uh, like to, to integrate Muslim community or to integrate all the different communities. If anything, I think, um, I've been in the UK for three years and I've been looking at uh, comparing a lot between the two countries. And um, I, I think the Muslim community in France felt very left down by the concept of laicity. I was wondering what you think about France and what you think about the yeah, laicity and secularism in France. <laughs> Well, firstly, there are progressive Muslim activists in France. I've worked with several of them as part of the European Foundation for Democracy's Network for a New European Generation. So if you look that up, you'll, you'll be able to find a few people who are doing similar work to what we're doing over here. Um, secondly, I'm not a big fan of, of ide what I call ideological secularism, um, as distinct from the sort of softer procedural secularism that we enjoy here in the UK. And this distinction was made in Cambridge University's contextualizing British Islam report. 
in certain manifestations of what I see as ideological secularism in France, like the niqab ban and the, the headscarf ban in schools, I've actually spoken out against those in France, which didn't make me very popular at the time, but I felt it had to be said. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree totally with Tamina. I mean, uh, the way secularism is sort of happens in France seems to be different. It, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be secularism to me. You know, it is actually the state stepping in and saying what different religious communities can and can't do. That's, that's not actually secularism. Secularism is where you, you stand back and you say, look, it's your beliefs, you do what you want to do. As long as you're not hurting each other, go for it. Um, and I'm not completely sure, I mean, to me just pointed out the different organizations that maybe exist there, but I do know that, you know, there's a, there's, there's a certain amount of racism in, in France that exists, which is, which is possibly because of the way that secularism is being forced upon people in some respects in, in France. Um, and if you wanted to, you know, there, there would probably be certain similarities with Northern Ireland and France, with with the amount of racism uh, and sort of bigotry that goes on. That people are not um, introduced into the community correctly. The, I mean, England is, have have done it well, even though they could do always do it better. You know, they have sort of the communities, London, Manchester, the cities are, are very sort of multicultural and they are multicultural. People do integrate with each other. When I lived in Manchester for ten years, I had. Muslim and Chinese friends and, and, and Catholic and Protestant friends and, and, and people who all interact with each other. In, in Belfast you don't have that. You know, there's, there's divides in that and I see that in France as well. So yes, yeah, something does need to be done about that. I think it's, it's up to the government to turn around and say, okay, we need to integrate people, but we need to leave them alone when it comes to their own beliefs or opinions or ideas. Just to, yeah. Yeah, just to quickly add about the niqab, I'm actually, oops, sorry, I think that um, modesty doctrines within religious communities should very much be critiqued. I just don't, don't think that you need, I, I don't think there should be a legal instrument that enforces, ban, you know, bans on particular items of clothing. Yes, so what you're saying is that within the community, Muslim community, they should not expect little girls of three, four, and five to wear headscarves, which is not really, which exactly. is absurd, extreme, and totally exactly. uh, unnecessary. But that should be critiqued from within the community and not be uh, a law, is what you're That's saying. That's right. Yeah, I understand. Right. Now, as usual, when time runs out, all the hands pop up. Uh, <laughs> where are we? I'm going to go for, try and get everyone in, but I think you've had your hand up before, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, I think the um, elephant in the room here is that the, um, the Quran, along with the Bible, uh, racist, homophobic, misogynistic, there's a bit of child abuse bound in there as well. And these are basic tenets of these books. And it allows the crazies, in any society, there's always going to be one or two percent of crazies. It allows these people to peg that and allows them to do anything they want to do in the name of these books. And I think the big challenge is how do we try to um, educate people? How do we try to enlighten people that these, these, these are the facts of these, these books? And um, as, a, as a member of the Ethical Society here, I think, what's the challenge? How do we actually get this message over that these, these books are basically medieval, superstitious claptrap? Um, and that's where the challenge lies, I feel.
Okay. Um, lady over. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Um, I tell you what, I'll come to you next. The lady over there, and then I'll come to you, John Edwards. Yep. Yes, around there. Um, I'm not sure I entirely agree. I think this is a case of um, misinterpreting scripture. The whole point is that you can read one sentence and one person will think it says one thing. Somebody else will think it says something entirely opposite and hence war breaks out. Um, but my question actually was about whether or not... I also don't agree that the term, with the term Islamophobia, I think it's also not just anti-Islamic sentiments out there, but um, anti-Middle Eastern. I think there's a sense that you, there's a crossover between religion and race. Um, so where you might get in the Middle East, there's a lot of anti-Western sort of sentiment. The same is happening here in reverse, and um, maybe that religion is being used as kind of an excuse for, for certain uh, fights to break out, but maybe there's a more racial subcontext that people aren't addressing. Would you agree? Um, I would definitely agree with what you're saying with regards to um, the sort of... Uh, Middle Eastern anti-sentiment from Middle Eastern people, um, simply because I, I see it all the time. I mean, it seems to be that people don't understand that refugees who are coming from the Middle East or from Syria could be Christians, could be non-religious. You know, it's just they're Muslims. So it, it, that, that that certainly exists, and that's some, something that does need to be addressed. With regards to the misinterpretation of um, religious texts, I, I don't think that's the case. It's just their interpretation. And I have to say that no interpretation is wrong. You know, it, it really is a case that you know people will say within, you know, Christian organisations or uh, Islam or Judaism and any sort of religious text that they're the ones that have it right and the other person is wrong. You know, that they're not Muslims because they're not reading the text right. No, you're all Muslims. You've all interpreted it the way that you want. The extremist that blows himself up is as much as a Muslim as the person who says, I'm a Muslim, but I don't pray five times a day and I'm going to have a drink. You know, you're still a Muslim, and that's how you identify yourself. It's how you interpret the text. So I don't believe it's a misinterpretation. The issue, as you say, is how do we get people to realize that these are ancient texts and all of the good bits? I mean, this is, this is one of the things that gets me. I get people that post up. Um, you know, like tweets of the, the Dalai Lama is made about saying something very eloquent and he says something about, you know, let's say he's saying, you know, be nice to your neighbor or something like that. And people will retweet these going, isn't that great? Is it not something you already knew? Really? Okay, he said it really poetically, it's really, really nice, but you already knew it. And it's the same goes down with everything that's in the Bible of the Quran, all the bits which are actually good, uh, sort of um, good values. You already knew these things, and I think that's just a case of evolution, you know, and that's why we already know those things. All the bad bits, you know, we look at those and go, in the 21st century, we realize that these are completely crazy, you know, and we need to do, do away with it. I, I think those things need to be addressed more. I think you're right in some ways that when somebody says, oh, well, look at this very good part of the Bible, this very peaceful verse or peaceful part of the Quran or whatever else, that we can point out 
uh, 21st century text or 20th century text that explain the same thing from people who are non-religious and, uh, and, you know, say that we already knew this, you know. And the other thing is you said, you know, how do you deal with it? I think pointing and laughing is, is a good way to deal with it. You know, not to get down about it. You know, it, it just show the absurdity in it, you know, and I think satire is really good. And I think as well, if you get bogged down and annoyed with it, you're not actually doing anything. All you're doing is getting yourself in a position where you're getting pissed off with it. Whereas if you can have a bit of fun with it, you know, well, at least you're happy. <laughs> you know? and, uh, I think, I think yeah, I agree that there's no such thing as a wrongful interpretation, but at the same time, there are interpretations which bring to mind the higher virtues of the Quran, which are popularized by scholars like Sheikh Khalid Abu al-Fadl, you know, mercy and compassion and so on. The problem is, we don't hear much from these progressive theologians like Sheikh Khalid Abu al-Fadl, like Amina Wadud, Asma Balas and others, because if you go into any Islamic bookshop, you will see conservative, very conservative books from Diabandi and Salafi traditions, you won't see any progressive scholars or, or, their, or their, their work, and this is a real problem for me. And in terms of racism, I think there's a lot of intra-community racism within Muslim communities, particularly against black Muslims and black converts, and this is something that really needs to be addressed. I think what Boyd was saying, um is really, if you like, the, the basis of ethical societies which really are saying that you don't have to believe in God or theology in order to have a humane and humanistic ethics, that it's, it can't in any way be based on an instruction, even if there were a God who said, thou shalt not steal or whatever it might be. Uh, that cannot logically be the basis for doing something. The only way you can justify your beliefs is written up there above us, or you can see it, I can't. You've got to, uh, your own personal moral belief has to be the basis for your morality. It can't be done on a command system. And I think you're saying that if you strip away all the theology, what you get left with are mercy, compassion, humanity, all the virtues that humans can invent for their own, uh, they can do it for themselves. They don't need to be ordered to do that by an external authority. Having said all that, my little speech, uh, that's a uh, lady over there, yes. I'm sorry, I promised the chap upstairs, you'll have to wait. Next time, John. Yep. Hi, um, I'm a practicing artist who, in my stupidity, in my 40s, decided to go to the Royal College to develop my work, and my work is very much about secularism. So the Charlie Hebdo thing kind of basically did my head in, I'm still not recovered. As soon as I walked into the Royal College of Art as an artist, first day I was called in for a chat, in inverted commas, a chat. And then uh, the, over the last two or three months, I've noticed that my fellow, I'm doing a research degree, so my fellow students who are in their 20s are routinely and systematically shutting me down. I have to speak whatever I say, oh, ah. Oh. Now, and or sometimes explosions around me. Anyway, it took me months to work out what the hell's going on. And essentially, because I'm in my 40s and spend my whole time with this kind of crowd, um, I had no idea that universities have absolutely stemmed and, and stopped freedom of speech. There is no freedom of speech. It seems to me, I may be wrong, but I'm not seeing anything. There's hardly any debate. It's all about safe spaces and not causing offence. Can you tell me, please, 
how, as an artist who does satirical work, not always, but usually, on these very issues, how the hell I'm going to survive, A, as a student to get this fucking degree that I need to get, and then as a practitioner. Right, obviously I don't draw Muhammad anymore, so I'm going to get my head blown off, that is true. That's how I feel, maybe it's true or not, that's how I feel. So I don't draw Muhammad. But certainly the, the, the right to critique and speak about what's happening in the Western world and how our values perhaps are being kind of shaken up a bit and questioned, like, how do I do my work? Without being, without you know, not getting okay, a second. Right. Yeah. Ow. Thank you. <laughs> ah, dear. Um, just a minute. I think yeah. I just want to say, have you any particular view on, on? Uh, sorry, Camille. Uh, uh, have you any particular views on drawings of Muhammad? No, sorry. I meant to. No, sorry. I know I you're sorry. Views. I need to, to draw. I, uh, I, I can't. It's the one image. I no, can't no. Draw. I know. Sorry. I meant to ask Tamina. There have been many historical depictions of the Prophet Muhammad in Persian art, in Mughal art, so, and the, the sort of modern frenzy about it is something that I really don't understand at all. Um, and in, in, in answer to your question, I think the best way forward is just to build a critical mass of other artists, like-minded artists. I mean, that, this is what we've done as campaigners. That's the only way we've managed to sort of Break, break new ground. We would never have got the, the um, university's UK guidance withdrawn without that critical mass of activists or the law society guidance on Sharia rules, for example. That's the, the best way. You just need to find as many like-minded and supportive, supportive people as possible, get them all together and work together, build relationships. And Mohammed said, I'm the messenger, I'm not the message, so he himself would not want all this uh, glorification of him as a personality, would he? Okay. Uh, yep. I'm sorry. It has to be John Edwards. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yep. Up there. You have to shout, yes. You have to shout. Okay. Well, boy, just say something. Yeah. Um, I think. Uh, uh, I think I think you're right. You know, uh, the, the West, as you say, and I'm glad that you identified what the West is because I always get this: what is the West? The West of war. Um, and I think I think you're right. You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, they they've done some idiotic things, and they don't learn from their mistakes in the past. And there is certainly, uh, you know, the, we shouldn't have gone to war in, in different places. But it's very difficult. You know. It, I guess Britain and America in some way see themselves as a bastion of hope and that they're, they're going to try and change something. What they don't realize is, or what they're not addressing is, what actually are they trying to achieve? You know, and then you have the problem that you'll get the conspiracy theorists then, that it's all about the oil and they're going in there to get the oil and it's all about money and it's some corporate company doing this, that and the other. I think in actual fact they're just a bit stupid at times. And, and, and that's what I put it down to. For instance, with Syria, to actually speak to them initially to, to see what their thoughts were and what we were doing, they were very um, keen to support us. And they were like, you know, this is what we've written as our GCSE paper and as our A-level paper, and there's a lot of philosophy involved in it as well. And, and they're actually very, very good. M my issue, or at least the way I'm looking at it at the minute, is it doesn't seem to be that there's a big issue so much for GCSE and A-level. It's on down the line, and I'm not sure how bad it is in, in England and Scotland and Wales, but in Northern Ireland from a very early age, from primary one, so when kids are five or six, they are being indoctrinated 
rather than being educated about faith, and 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 that that is an issue. Um, but I do see what you're saying that you know more needs to be done to promote secular voices or progressive voices within different religious communities. And I would actually say, although people sometimes disagree and they say, well, that has to come within the religion. I don't think that that's the case. I think it is up to us as people who are secular, us as people who are maybe humanists or atheists or non-religious, and even those of different religions from each other, to promote each other. It's, it's up to us to do it. Because unless I stand up as a non-religious person and say, well, I think this is a good voice to hear, the voice doesn't get heard by other people of my belief, of, of, of the non-religious belief system. It's up to us as Atheist Northern Ireland to have blogs by Muslim bloggers, by Christian bloggers, by Jewish bloggers who are progressive. You know, and, and I think as much as I disagree with organized religion, as much as I do not believe in God, and I think it's, you know, and this may be offensive, but I find it silly. I find it a silly thing. I still have to believe. I still have to be promote. offensive. What you're saying yeah. is you believe in comparative religion rather than indoctrination. Y in our yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the way forward is to get progressive and secular speakers into schools and this is already happening on an informal level with um, academies in East London. Um, I've been asked to speak at both private schools and state schools in the northeast and various parts of the country to, to show, show people that to show students that there is an, an alternative um, Muslim viewpoint and on top of that what you need are specific curriculums so for example um, I worked on a curriculum for English Pen a few years ago on faith and free speech in schools and this was a series of lesson plans and short videos that uh, encouraged students to get talking about contra controversial issues to do with faith and free speech and how the two collide um, and then in terms of Muslim majority schools specifically there was a program a few years ago called the Islam and citizenship education program which talked about the commonality between British values and Islamic values on issues like women's rights on volunteering on being an active citizen in your community and that that um, uh, program was so successful that they even had interest from the US and other countries yes because anyone who's involved with the um, various committees that work out syllabuses for RE in schools will know that uh, as has been indicated they're often not representative of the diversity within the particular religion. I was on a committee in, in Haringey where the Hindu representative denied there was anything like a caste system in Hinduism, which is so preposterous, really. But he was denying it. He was trying to present a totally um, rose-tinted view of what he thought Hinduism was. And I'm sure the same applies to the other religions and Islam, you need the, the actual controversies which are raging within the religions have to somehow get a look in in the RE syllabus. And if you're doing anything in that direction, it's obviously very good. Now, the issue, I guess, is but where do you stop? You know, where, where do you stop when it comes yeah, well, to religion? Do we start teaching about Scientology? Do we start teaching uh, about No, 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 no. I, I think we, we, we do stop because there are six religions and we don't include Scientology. I and mean, obviously, <laughs> there has to be. I mean, I agree. Yeah, you know. I mean, I've been confronted by someone, well, why don't you teach Wicca or witch, witchcraft? Well, in fact, there could be a place for mentioning it in one lesson because it's something which does exist, but uh, in, in proportion. Now, we are running out of time desperately. I did promise that lady, yes. yes. Hello. I'd just like to say this has been a very valuable discussion. 
but it, by and large it's been about British Muslims and the way that British Muslims are becoming uh, fundamentalized, if that's a word. I have been traveling for the past 15 years in the Middle East and North Africa. And believe me, there is no such division there between Muslims, Christians, Jews. I spoke to a man in Khartoum who was a Muslim who was sending his daughters to the Catholic school because the education there was better. I spoke to some young men in Damascus, and I was there the first year of the war, who said, oh, we thought you were a Christian. I said, actually, I'm a Muslim. Um, he said, their behavior towards me before and after that simple comment was no different. I spoke to a young man in Ethiopia who I thought was a Muslim. He said, no, I'm just fasting today because my Muslim friends are fasting and we're friends. That's all, thank you. Yes, well, okay, so this, these things go in phases, don't they? I mean, 30 years ago in Egypt, the women did not go around covered in the way they have to now. These things go forwards and backwards on a big scale. Any comment on that? Um, just that um, there's actually a big debate on this in the um, Washington Post recently. Uh, Asra Naomi and Hala Arafa wrote a piece on should non-Muslim women wear headscarves in solidarity with Muslim women, and this created a big um, ruckus in, in in the states and beyond. And personally, I think non-Muslims are fully entitled to show solidarity however they wish, but at the same time. There are sort of broader issues going on within Muslim communities where women are pressurized um, into covering their hair, wearing specific religious garments. And those who don't, or those who wear them and then take them off, are treated as somehow less pious. And this is, this is something that we really need to address. We need to address the, the negative aspects of modesty doctrines and have an honest conversation about that. Okay. Yes, another person upstairs. Yeah. Can you toss up the microphone, Evan? He's a professor of physics, but I'm not sure he can throw microphones around accurately. He's going up. Just put the question now. I, well, it, I'm coming to the, the, as an example, um, I was traveling with another German student and we went to an Egyptian um, family dinner um, for Eid and um, they asked her where she was from and she said Germany and, and the response was from the father, um, we like Hitler very much, uh, he killed all the Jews. Um, and after that I found out that um, there was another German student and he had mentioned that he was German to many taxi drivers around Egypt and um, they also said the same comment about liking Hitler and how he um, killed all the Jews. Um, my question was though that there is um, in my travels I, I think a big distinction between um, the educated uh, and those living in poverty. Those living in poverty tend to have more uh, extreme views uh, I suspect because there's a greater need for a sense to belong to a particular group. Um, and because of the lack of education. 
Um, and if you talk to educated Egyptians uh, who are in uh, the, the middle class or the above the middle class, which are in the minority, um, they are incredibly open, they've traveled more, um, and um, they have less uh, extremist views, sometimes even more open-minded than um, a lot of Westerners um, I speak to. Um, so my question was, um, do you see a link between poverty um, and extremist views, and uh, do you not think that one of the main uh, ways of combating um, extremism is basically for um, there to be more social equality in the world generally, um, to pull people out of poverty uh, in, in the Middle East, who, some of whom live in okay. absolutely terrible situations, um, which will... Um, Oh, yeah. Do you see a link, basically, between poverty and extremist views? Okay. I tell you what, that's going to be the, the last question, and I'll ask each of the speakers to have a go at it. Um, yeah. With regards to... Uh uh, poverty and extremism? No, I don't. I don't think. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't see that link there. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. To do with regards to poverty and um, people not being very well educated, certainly that that does exist. Um, and you know, we, we we see it quite a bit in Northern Ireland. You know, there's there's very sort of deprived areas, and I, I put part of that down to the attitudes of young people. Um, because they're still offered a decent education. I mean, here's the thing, as much as in Northern Ireland the Catholic schools are, 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 can be pretty awful with regards to the, the way that they teach religion, their education is, you know, the, the, what they offer as a, as a way of education with regards to the sciences and maths and English and whatever else is very, very good. It tends to be that young people, myself included when I was younger, you don't want to show that you're, in order to be in the in crowd, you can't be seen as being somebody who sits and studies all the time. You know, you, you know, you, you, it's this sort of social sort of idea that you're not cool or you're not one of the guys if you're not doing that. And when you go into sort of poverty-stricken areas in Northern Ireland, it becomes very evident that the guys are the guys and they all go and do things together and the, the groups of guys, you know, have to be sort of very laddish. And, and that needs to change. You know, young people need to understand that being getting an education is a good thing, and and they need to just try and enjoy education more. Um, with regards to uh, poverty and extremism, in actual fact, the, the opposite is 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 what seems to be the case. You know, in studies, it's showing that it's generally. You know, young men from middle class backgrounds who are well educated, university educated, that are the ones blowing themselves up. And generally speaking, they're all doing things like um, engineering degrees. <laughs> it's always yeah. maths or engineering degrees. You know, that that is a a strange thing. I'm not totally sure why it is, but it's certainly nothing. To, it's nothing to do with the poverty when it comes to at least. Islamic extremism, you know, that idea of going and, uh, and killing yourself in order to be murdered. So, I totally agree with Boyd. Um, when you look at the case studies of radicalized women um, and women who've gone out to Syria specifically, like the Halane twins, they had a string of A stars at GCSE between them, um, and so, so did many of the, the others. I mean, they, they all came from similarly um, academic backgrounds, and yet they, they, they were still sort of lured into these, these, very, these poisonous and toxic ideologies. And so, something that people don't really take into consideration 
is the, the critical thinking skills, because this is what those people lack. They may be well-educated in the, in the conventional sense, in, t in terms of jumping through hoops and passing exams, but the critical thinking skills are sorely lacking. So I, I, I personally think that we need to, to teach critical thinking better and at, an, at an earlier age. And on top of that, um, Mia Bloom, a researcher, has done some research on radicalized women, and she actually found that a lot of it was to do with redemption. So, for example, several young girls who supported Yusra Hussain, the, the girl from Bristol who went missing in Syria, did so because they had um, actually slept with, uh, they'd had boyfriends and, and they felt guilty about, doing, uh, about having sex before marriage. And the, the, it, uh, supporting somebody who'd gone to Syria was, was in, a, in a twisted way, part of their, they, they saw it as part of their redemption. Can we? No, but we can't hear. Up, actually, and all I can say is, I'd like to, th and I'd like us all to, th sorry, I would like us all to thank very much both speakers and also Camina here and the work she's doing, and um, thank you all very much for your attendance and your questions. One question: Can you do it in one sentence? I'm not very articulate. I'll try to. It sounds like it. Do one sentence. Okay. How does or do these efforts that you people together are bringing the faiths, different faiths, you know, being part of the wider society or enlightened society or society based on reason, how does these efforts benefit the future of the society and the future of uh, the humanity at large? Because it's just like saying, yeah, you can have nonsense, but Please blend in with the common sense. Okay, so comment. Thank you. Yeah. We'll have a comment from each of our speakers, and then we will have to stop. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I somewhat agree with what you're saying. Um, and I think in some respects as well, what you tend to find that you're doing is you're always preaching to the converted already. I'm sure the vast majority of people in this room believe in universal human rights. You're probably mainly humanists, or at least agnostic, you're probably not extremists in any way. Um, uh, for me, what I have found in Northern Ireland is that I can actually find places where um, people do have uh, fundamental Christian views. And I can go to those places and listen to the talks that go on and then, and then get into a dialogue with them. And what you do tend to find is that online, people don't listen to each other. They, they, they just see the attack and they attack back and it's attack, attack, attack. <laughs> And you don't ever really get anywhere unless you're talking to other people who have a similar opinion to you. But see, when you go and you actually speak to somebody who has a totally different opinion to you, and you're standing to them face to face, you're more polite, and they're more polite to you, and you start to listen to each other, and that is the best way to get a dialogue going on. That is the best way to to you know, create a difference. We need to invite people of other views here you know, and, and, and invite more people to the likes of our brunches. We invite lots of people from 
different religious backgrounds to them because we want to come to them. And it's not that we want to challenge them or we want to attack their views. We want to have those conversations with them so as they can start to understand universal human rights, secularism better. I think that the way forward is interfaith social action, and we've done a bit of this, um, and you've seen good examples of this with uh, the Muslim soup kitchens that have been popping up, especially over Christmas, and all the work that's been done to uh, help the flooding victims, particularly in Cumbria. You, you see lots of Muslim organizations getting out there and working with those of other faiths. There's a, a wonderful uh, um, uh, initiative called Rumi's Kitchen, which, is, which operates out of, critical, uh, of Cricklewood Mosque, and they've done a lot of work with Jewish charities like Mitzvah Day, and in fact, one of their regular volunteers is sitting here in the audience with us, Graham. There he is. Yeah. So uh, these are the kinds of initiatives that um, I'd like to see more of. Well, thank you very much indeed. Now, um, those of you who feel you want to say something more but haven't had a chance, if you come back at 2.30 into the Brockway room, down the corridor, you'll be able to have an informal conversation on this or similar subjects. So thank you all very much and thank the, our speakers too. Thank you.